The book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verses 20 through 22. The book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verses 20 through 22. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid in silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, just by way of announcement, in case you couldn't tell, it is spring break um, and there are lots of people visiting. Um, that being so, we've decided to shut the church down, um, not permanently, just Monday and Tuesday. Um, if you guys try to show up to the offices Monday and Tuesday, there will be no one here, there will be no lights, um, no coffee, and by nature there being no coffee, there will be no pastor in the office. Um, you can always call me on my cell phone, um, but we're shutting off the electricity for a couple days so that we can tie in to the other building. Uh, I think the first Sunday that we're shooting for do not take this as an authoritative statement because I'm only saying it. Most people are gone. They won't even know if I was wrong. Um, the first Sunday should be May the 5th. And so is when we're hoping to uh, break into it. Um, those of you who have Star Wars get up can come in your May the 4th outfit still and we'll celebrate. So uh, feel free to come and celebrate with us the opening of the building. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's go ahead and pray together. Father God, we thank you. That we get to open up your word, Father. We thank you that there are people right now sharing the gospel uh, with others in other nations and other countries, Father. God, we thank you that we get to be a part of this great cloud of witnesses, Father, that testifies to your redeeming work. God, we are not able to obey the law on our own, but Father, you have enabled us to obey you by the sacrifice of your Son, and through the work of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, now I pray, Lord, um, even on more of a laid-back Sunday, as more people are here, that our worship will not be laid back, that our attendantness will not be laid back, but we will be just as passionate to obey and to hear and to do all that you have told us to do. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Now, we began our study a couple weeks ago on Exodus chapters 20 through 23, and we used Micah 6.8 as a guide. Now, Micah calls God's people, if you're new with us this morning, it calls us to three things, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And so as we've seen throughout this law, the law clearly takes each of these case laws and categorizes them under one of those three things. Doing justice, as we saw a couple weeks back, is living with God's created order in mind, living according to God's standards of what is right. It is seeking to do things as God intended them to be done. Next, we saw loving kindness and how God calls us to replicate for others the mercy that he has shown us. We seek freedom for the captives because we were the captives God has set free. We seek to free those who are our debtors because our debts have been forgiven in Christ. We take care of the orphans because we have been made sons and daughters of God. 
Well, by next logic progression, today we're on the final phrase of Micah's summary of the law. We come now to walking humbly with God. Put in old Reformation terms, if you know me, I'm a nerd about the Reformation. Um, I, I love the old, the old phrases. I love what, uh, what happened in that whole time period. But one of my favorite phrases that came out of the Reformation period was a phrase called Coram Deo. The law calls us to live Coram Deo. Now you may be wondering, what in the world is that? There are half the people here and you're still resorting to Latin. Um, Coram Deo is simply this. Coram Deo is the concept that acknowledges that all of life at all times and all places is a life that is lived before the face of God. If you go to your closet, God is there. If you go to your bedroom, God is there. If you go to your workplace, God is there. You go to church, God is there. Every moment, every second, and every place, life is lived before God. Corum Deo. It's a life that is lived acknowledging that God sees all, hears all, knows all. His presence is not just theoretical to us, but practical. Can you imagine if we all live life, Coram Deo, before the face of God? God hears the way that I talk to my wife. God hears the grumblings of my heart. When my, and when I step on my children's toy in the middle of the night, God hears the grumblings of my heart when things don't go my way, when, when, uh, it doesn't happen the way that I want it to happen. He's there when I think thoughts about coworkers and friends and people around me. He sees all of that, knows all of that. And so to live according to the law, to live according to Coram Deo, we're going to live in the presence of God knowing that he knows all of that. So now in our final discussion of the case laws found in Exodus, we're going to look at a couple things, four things in particular. Number one, we're going to look at God's desire for his people to walk with him. Number two, we're going to see how the law promotes a humble walk with God. So we're going to hone in walking with God um, into Exodus 20 and 23 and consider how those case laws encourage that kind of walk. Number three, we're going to consider how all people, including Israel, abandon God to walk with other gods. And then number four, we're going to consider how God has restored our walk uh, with him through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how we are now free to not, to, to not just walk with God in a theoretical sense, but walk with God in a real sense because of his spirit in us. So let's look at the first one. God's desire to walk with humanity. Um, I'm a, I'm what you might call a biblical theologian. I, I've spent years trying to study biblical theology. And so all that means is I've learned how to trace things through the Bible, right? I, I've learned how to take it from its inception, the first place that the Bible says something and to follow it through till it's telos, to, to where it's fulfilled in Christ. And so today we're going to do that with walking with God. We're just going to see how the whole Bible presses us to walk with God. So we're going to start in Exodus, actually start in Genesis, and make our way all the way into Paul's letters and, and how um, uh, Paul presses us to a walk with God. So with that being said, we're going to start all the way back in Genesis as we consider a history of walking with God. Now, some of you might be bored. You should have taken a spring break trip. Next year, you'll know better. Um, so, buckle down. Okay? According to Scripture, 
Walking with God is the one of the primary reasons why humanity was created. One of the primary reasons why humanity was created. Now, of course, we could argue the primary reason why God created humanity was to be glorified through humans, right? But God works through means. How does he glorify himself by creating humans, specifically by walking with them? As you get this infinite, high, and majestic God who chooses to dwell with, speak with, walk with, finite, ant-like little creatures like us. The God who speaks the cosmos into existence is the same God that whispers in the silence. The same God that walks in the cool of the day. That's the first instance you see it in Genesis. It's Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. When we find God walking in the cool of the day. Now the verb used for walking there suggests that it was a regular habitual practice. That this is what God did with his creatures on a regular basis. Can you imagine that? You have your breakfast time, you have your Bible, your, your morning, they didn't have a Bible back then, but you had your devotional time, um, you, you go and pick the, you do all your chores, you pick the fruit, you clean up all the mess, you know, you get the alligator back into the pond, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, and then it comes time to the end of the day, and all of a sudden you just hear this, because God's walking came with a sound. And they hear it. Eve, it's time to walk with God. He's here. He's come to walk with us. Can you imagine how cool that would be? Just every day at a particular time, God shows up just to take an evening stroll with us. Just to enjoy the flowers, the sights, the sounds, the greenness of the grass. That's what humanity enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. It was not just a theoretical walk with God. It was a real walk with God, a real evening stroll with the creator of all the universe. Now, walking with God in the garden meant two things in particular. Number one, it meant a close personal relationship with God. When God walked with Adam and Eve, he gave them his presence and his provision. They didn't need anything. On the other hand, when man walked with God, when Adam and Eve walked with God, it entailed their perfect worship and obedience of God. So in the Garden of Eden, in no other place in all of Scripture, do you ever see God's presence experienced in such fullness and brightness, at least in the Old Testament. New Testament, we'll talk about that here in a minute. But in no other place in the Old Testament is God's presence experienced in all of its fullness than in the Garden of Eden. In no other place in the Old Testament do you see People worshiping and obeying God with such purity and perfection as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That all changed, of course, the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's not just that he didn't want them to know what good and evil was. He told them what good and evil was. He didn't want them to eat from the tree of self-discernment, basically. This was a tree that would allow them, if they ate of it, they would discern for themselves what is good and evil. They would reset the rules, basically, create their own laws. And so they fell to this temptation to be like God. Now, just so you can see what exchange actually happened in the Garden of Eden, they were given a walk with the creator of the universe And in the forbidden fruit, they had a chance to cut their own path. They had a chance to go their own way. They didn't have to walk with him anymore. They could veer off to another trail if they wanted to. Be their own trailblazers. 
set their own pace, choose their own destination. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? No one to tell us where to go. No one to tell us what to do. Well, it sounded nice to them. That is until they ate from the fruit. They realized that they were shamefully exposed and that all that they needed was in God. And instead of walking with God in the cool of the day, where do we find them in Genesis 3? They're hiding from him. That sound that sounded so beautiful at the end of every day, all of a sudden became a terror. Adam heard it and he fled. God's here. Run. So instead of walking with, we got humanity running from God. Sin damages. Sin disrupts. Sin takes away our walk with God. And it didn't just, again, theoretically separate them from their walk with God. There's a real separation of ways, a real parting of ways. God sent them out of the garden. As a physical act, he exiled them from the Garden of Eden. The walk was over. No more sound at the cool end of the day. No more hand in hand. No more, God, look at those beautiful flowers and the fruit that you have created and listen to the soft waves going that you made and let's listen to the birds that you created sing to you, God. No more of that. It was over. And God could have let it be over, but God in all of his grace and all of his mercy would not leave humanity in such a state. God immediately said about his plan that he had perfected this plan that that he would once again restore a walk with humanity, that once again there would be that hand-in-handness, that we wouldn't just hear God's sound walking in the cool of the day, but we might actually see his face. Walking in a new heaven and new earth, God set out on his plan to redeem that which had been ruined. And we see instances of people walking with God. We see it in Noah. We see it with Enoch. But we see it in particular with Abraham. And it's through Abraham that God promises to restore blessing back to all the earth. He promises to restore the walk with God once again. And so through Abraham and his descendants, as they walk with God, the nations are going to see their walk with God and are going to be brought along to walk with God as well. Just so you can see what God's all about here, there's no coincidence at all when God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, I am God God Almighty, walk with me, walk before me and be blameless. What was he inviting Abraham to do? Abraham, you and I are going to pick up where Adam and I left off. Walk with me and be blameless. After this statement, God continued to define the relationship with Abraham and his family, and he called Abraham's family to keep the covenant. In other words, to obey him. It was the same standards required of Adam and Eve. If they obey, if Abraham and his descendants obeyed God, then they would be able to look forward to a walk with God. Now we're going to fast forward to where we've been for the last, I don't know, however months, however many months we've been in Exodus. Um, some of you will say forever, and that's okay. Um, now we're in the book of Exodus where we pick up with Abraham's descendants. His presence is made known. He delivers them. He tells them that he's with them. And then in chapter 13, verse 21, guess where we find God? 
is in the pil- pillar. And in Hebrew, this makes it, it's more clear in Hebrew than it is in English. He walked before them in the pillar of cloud. That's amazing, I think. To think of God walking with his people out of Egypt. Can you imagine that? God walking in a cloud during the day. God walking in a, in a pillar of fire at night. Walking before his people. And the, uh, the, the, the result of that is that they have perfect protection from all their enemies. No enemies dare take them, right? In fact, no enemies can take them. And then they have perfect provision in the wilderness, just like Adam and Eve had perfect provision. Now, all this again requires that they be blameless, like Abraham, right? Walk before me and be blameless. If you want to see just the connection between Israel and Abraham, you just have to look at Leviticus 18, verses 4 through 5. Here's what he says. Now, listen to the similarities between Genesis 17:1 that we just read a little while ago, and Leviticus 18. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You have the same two elements that is found in Genesis 17.1. A declaration of who God is. I am the Lord. That's no different than God telling Abraham, I am the Lord Almighty. And then there's an invitation to walk. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk with me and obey. That's the very same thing that he says to them. Walk in my law and you're walking with me. That's what God invites his people into. Now, for Israel, walking before God meant obeying God. And if they obeyed God, if they walked with God, if they chose to trust in God, then they would have a relationship that would be a continuation of the relationship with Abraham and itself a partial restoration of the walk that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. Now, um, if they listen to God's commands, we get to Leviticus 26. And it says this, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. In other words, if they obeyed the law, they could have Eden back again. Partially, at least. Right. I'll walk among you. It's the same word that we find in Genesis chapter three, verse eight. Um, there's a couple of you holding your arms. Are, are, is anyone cold? OK. Uh, slice. Can you handle that? OK, thank you. Um, it's spring break, so we can take interruptions like that. Next week, y'all are out of luck. So <laughs> so that's what's promoted here, okay? Um, is that as we walk with God, as we obey Him, as we obey His commands, we're given Eden in part. So how does the law promote a walk with God? Well, it does three things. Number one, it warns Israel against walking with false gods. Number two, it reminded Israel that they were to walk with God on His terms. Number three, it called Israel to give thanks for God, uh, for God walking with them in the past. So we're going to look at those three things, a warning, a reminder, and a call, okay? With these three points in mind, we're going to see how the law sought to show Israel what a walk with God would look like among their nation. Now first, let's look at uh, the warning. The law warned Israel against walking with other gods. At the heart of all this, I think you have to understand that there are competitors to God. No, I'm not saying competitors in power. No, I'm not saying competitors in in ability to create things. There are no other gods. And Scripture is absolutely clear that none of them compare with him. 
But there are competitors for our hearts. There are competitors for our devotion. There are competitors for the, the, the worship that we give to God, for our soul devotion. And the law hits on that. Throughout the 40 some odd cases, case laws of Exodus chapter 20 verse 23 through, through 23, there are five of them that deal specifically with the danger of idolatry drift, about walking away from God to walk with idols. Now God knows the hearts of men. God knows our hearts. And he knows, even before he gets started with Israel here, that they're going to be prone to wonder. And that there's going to be things that are going to tempt them to walk away from him. And so he gives them laws to protect them. If they listen to the laws and if they do it, then they'll be able to continue to walk with him. My friends, let's face it. Just as a, as a subtle application here, just bringing it home to you. Your heart is an idol factory. Your heart is pregnant, full of baby gods, waiting to be given birth, that when they grow up, they master you, and then they kill you. Even good things, start off small, start off, start off helpless, start off loving, start off kind, and, 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 and give us all these things that we want. And yet, at the end of the day, these are the very things that might kill us if we give birth to them. The very things that might kill us if we allow them to grow in our lives. Children. Now, children are a good gift from God, right? I mean, I have to tell myself that on a regular basis. Arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. And yet, our desires for our children can also become an idol, can't they? We want our kid to be the next star pitcher on the Texas Rangers team. So we pour out thousands of dollars on coaches that haven't played since high school. We want our kid to be the next biggest, I don't know, name a band guy. Who I don't, I don't listen to music much, so some artist. So we buy them all the instruments that they want. We, we pamper them. We give them all the things that they could ever want, video games and food and all the sweets that they could ever dream of without ever actually shaping them and molding them. Why? Because it is our pet idol that we're feeding. We're growing. Your jobs, your your cars, your possessions, your your big house, whatever it is, even your spouse, if your spouse becomes a source of identity... It can be an idol if what your spouse says determines how happy you are with Jesus. It's an idol. So, my friends, let's just face it right now. No one's immune to it. And I feel like if we could be at least honest about it with ourselves, then we might actually make some progression in our battle with idolatry. Never think that the things that make you mad, the things that make you sad, the things that make you the most upset are good intentioned things. You might think that you are protecting your kid's heart when the coach sets him on the bench. But in reality, you might also be protecting your idol. You might think that you're just protecting your honor when you snap at someone for something they said to you. When in reality, you might just be protecting your idol of reputation. My friends, never assume 
that the things that we protect the most are good. Because at the end of the day, they come from God. At the end of the day, they, they are given by God. And at the end of the day, they are meant to lead us to praise and thank God. And if we do not end the day praising and thank, thanking God for them, something is off in our devotion. So that being so, let's look at some of the ways the laws call us to steer clear of idols. Look at verses 22 through 23. You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. Now, just to paint the picture here, Israel had personally witnessed how God came down in an unprecedented way. Fire and clouds and booming and thunder and earthquake. And God had come down on the mountain. And yet, Moses makes it clear in Deuteronomy 4, they still did not see the form of God. They didn't see his face. They didn't see his body. God enshrouded himself in the in the cloud and in the fire. Had he not, they'd have all been dead. Okay, so God had to had to veil himself in all of those things. So just following the progression of logic, they have seen God come down. They have heard God's thundering voice. They have felt the earthquakes. They have felt the heat of the fire. They did not even see the fullness of God. Whatever makes them think that they could build a God of silver or gold to fully encapsulate all of its majesty and attributes is foolish. That's the heart behind that law. Why would you make a statue of silver and gold? You can't fully encapsulate God in it. Not only that, it's offensive to even think that the Lord Almighty, the creator of all things, could ever be perfectly represented in a statue. So he knows that if they build statues, it will lead away from him, not to him. It will actually give them a picture that is less than the grandeur of God. It'll give them a picture that is less than the glory of God. It'll give them a picture that is less than the majesty of God. It won't stir up the devotions of their heart. It'll wet them down. Now, sadly, this is the kind of foolishness all humanity has fallen into. If you fast forward ahead into the New Testament, Romans 1, 22 through 23 talks about humans when it says... Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It's sad. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Idolatry leads to this exchange at all times. Exchanging the immortal for the temporary. Exchanging the good for the less good. The perfect for the not so perfect. Idolatry makes us, forces us to take that exchange. It's an exchanging of the great and the majestic and the glorious God for the things that he created to lead us to worship him. Let's not make that exchange. God's people were not only to stay away from idols, but anything that drew them away from him. If you look at verse 18 of Exodus chapter 22, it says this, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. 
Now, sorceresses are not like your, like what we imagine, you know, on Halloween where the, the, the kids are running around in witch dresses and all that kind of stuff. These are, just to be clear, these are mediums, diviners, and necromancers, right? These are people who are altering the spiritual universe to bring about a fortune, right? To tell the fortune, to be able to decide what direction to go. They'd call on demons. They'd, they, um, uh, what's the little game that people play? The little triangle, the Ouija board. Yeah, these are people that were doing junk like that. Okay, um, that were trying to to get to to get an answer from the spiritual realm. Should I leave my job? Should I sell my house? Should I, you know, uh, I don't know. Should I go down this road or will I die? You know. So they're seeking out these fortune tellers and diviners and necromancers and whatever else. And it's not coincidental. That this is one of the very reasons that God says later in Deuteronomy 18, that he's going to drive out the Canaanites. Now, how in the world might sorcerers draw people away from God? Well, who are we supposed to rely on for the future? Who are we supposed to inquire of? Palm readers? Fortune tellers? The little thing that tells you what star you're on? I'm a cancer. I found that very offensive um, that someone would dare call me a cancer. But... Whatever that, what is that, horoscope? Yeah. We're not meant to, to draw on those things. We're not meant to come to those things. That law doesn't allow that to happen. Why? Because Israel is to remain dependent upon the great provider and protector of Israel, the God of all the universe. They're meant to rely on Him and Him alone and to be humbly dependent on Him. If you want answers, don't go to people that will draw you away from Him. Go to God Himself. Go to him in prayer. Go to him in humble dependence, asking for an answer. Next, just a few verses later, God warns against anyone who sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone. And they shall be devoted to harem, to devoted to destruction. It's the same word you find later in the land of Canaan when all these cities, including Jericho, are to be wiped out. They're to be made harem, Right? The Bible sees idolatry like a cancer that grows and spreads among people. It's not isolated. It's infectious. It's something that, that grows among the people of God. If you want an example, go to Numbers 25. When you see a group of Moabite women dancing and they invite a group of men from Israel, just a group of men from Israel to join in with them, to play, to make a sacrifice to the idol, to the Moabite idols and to bow down to them. And next thing you know, all of Israel is said to yoke itself to the Baal of Peor, the whole nation. The end result is that 24,000 people die on the desert floor because of that idolatry. My friend, idolatry is never, never isolated. And so Israel's told from the law to cut it out like a cancer. In Exodus twenty two twenty eight, God commanded Israel, You shall not revile God, nor, nor curse a ruler of your people. God was the one who raised up leaders. God was the one who put Moses in his place. God was the one who anointed David. And so they're to listen to these leaders because God has put them in place to lead them to him. So anytime they revile a leader, they're ultimately rejecting the authority of God. We see it again in Numbers chapter 16 when Korah and Dathan arrogantly question God's wisdom in putting Levi and Moses up as leaders over the people. And God answers not just by killing them with the plague, but actually swallowing them up 
in the ground, showing, this is what I think about your reviling of your leaders. My friends, you, you, you need to be aware. There are people vying for the leadership spot not to lead you to God, but to lead you away from him. It's not a paranoid thought. It actually is true. We see it happening over and over and over in the Bible. There are some leaders that are out for your blood. And so God says to beware of them. If they listen to the law, the law gives them fair warning. There are people who will try to lead them astray. Anyone who reviles God, anyone who rejects God's authority that he has put over them, they are to uh, stone. Exodus 23, 13. Gets, uh, goes on to set the standard for Israel's devotion. Here's what he says. Pay attention to all that I have said to you. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. In his holiness, God is so zealous for his people that he doesn't even want them to name the lips of other gods. God calls himself a jealous God. And we might think that's a bad thing, right? But it's not. It's, it's a good thing for a wife to be jealous for her husband's devotion. It's a good thing for a husband to be jealous for his wife's devotion. If I start coming around the house naming the name of another woman more than I name the wife, the name of my own wife, you better believe I'm not coming out of there alive. It's the same thing with God. God's a jealous God. He's passionate about devotion to him. He doesn't want the very lips that were made to proclaim his name to start speaking the names of all these other gods. It's spiritual adultery. It's cheating on God when you do that. Now, all of these laws show that it's impossible to walk with God and other gods. Impossible to walk with God and idols. They lead to two different destinations. They go in two different directions. Your idolatries, your idols will never lead you to the God of the universe. The God of the universe will never lead you to idols. They are utterly opposed to one another. So I think it's good for us as, as Christians who are reading back onto the law. We need to understand that there are idols that are trying to lead us from God. And we must be, we must hear the laws pleading and the laws warning and the laws telling us that there are idols that are trying to kill us. There are idols trying to lead us away from the God of life. Now, second, let's look at the reminder. The law reminded Israel that they walk with God on his own terms. I'll give you just a little illustration of this. Um, I know some of you are pretty getting pretty weary of going through the law. This is our last week on it. Next week will be fun um, if you don't like this week. Um, let me just give you an illustration. When the weather permits, which is um, not very often here in Texas, um, my kids and I like to go on walks together. Uh, we'll just go walk around the neighborhood um, if it's too hot, we don't do it. If it's too cold, we don't do it. But we'll just go walk together. But they know that I am the boss on those walks. They walk with me on my terms. I'm dad. I know about all the weird predators that are around, the stray dogs, the hidden snakes, the sharp glass on the side of the road, the inattentive texting drivers. I know about all those things. And so they need to stay with me. That's one of our rules. I tell them, keep up. Lagging behind is just as dangerous as running too far ahead. They've got to keep with me. I tell them constantly, speed up, slow down, stop, move, go. And they might get annoyed by that. But the reality is if they want to walk with dad, they walk with me on my terms, not on theirs. I'm not being a dictator, 
I'm being a dad. I'm being loving. Well, it's the same thing with God. We do not walk with God on our terms. We walk with God on his terms. Now, some of us might groan about that. Oh, God has terms for the walk. Well, yes, he does, but he still graciously chooses to walk with us. God does have terms for how his people should approach him. We don't approach him in and of our own right and in the ways that we decide. We approach him in the way that he decides. But in the grace of all that, we forget that he still allows us to approach him. He still walks with us. Now, God sets the terms for a walk with him in, in the law. He tells them uh, even how to build their altars. They're not to build the altars like the other nations, wielding a tool against it. You see it in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 24 through 26. Um, they're also to make sure that they don't go up steps so their nakedness is not exposed on the altar. I can sympathize with that rule. Don't want you approaching my house exposing your nakedness either. So it makes total sense that God would give terms on how the people are to approach him. They are not just to come building altars the way that they want. They're not to come wearing whatever they want. They're to come dressed appropriate. They're to come building altars in the way that he has called them to. And here's the blessing of it all, though. Even though he's called terms, even though he's he's given them terms on how to approach them, he still gives them amazing promise in verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Oh, isn't that cool? He's got terms, but he's also got promises. You come to me on my terms and I will bless you every place I choose to name my name. I just want to give you an example of how foolish it would be to reject God's terms because we're, we're upset that he even has terms. Imagine if Noah said, God... I just, I'm going to reject your offer of salvation from the flood because you chose to make it the ark uh, 30 cubits high instead of 25 cubits high. That'd be foolish, wouldn't it? Come on, Noah, build the ark the way God said. You're going to live. God's graciously giving you away and you're griping about five cubits. Right? That'd be dumb. That would have been dumb for, for Noah to do. But we do this all the time. Well, I don't want salvation if I have to come through Jesus. I don't want to walk with God if it means I I need to read my Bible sometimes. My friends, walking with God has its terms, but the reality is, is that these terms are meant for our good. And if we choose to walk with God, we mustn't complain about the terms, but we must bask in the glory that God would choose to walk with us at all. Now, moving on. Humbling walking with God means living life in the way that he designed it. In Exodus 22, verse 19, he says this, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. God made life. God made man and woman. God made sex. God made people in his own image. Therefore, to walk humbly with God is to live in the way that God intended things to be done. It even applies to the way that they eat. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. In other words, you are my people called by my name, called for my glory. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the, in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Yes, God has rights to even determine what his people should eat in the Old Testament. Now, God's terms extend to sacrifices as well. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. 
He doesn't want yeast to touch the meat. He doesn't want it to last overnight. Well, who's he, who, who is he to tell them how to sacrifice? I mean, these are sacrifices to him. Well, these sacrifices are meant to maintain a relationship with him. This is God's grace. And, and so if you're going to sacrifice to God, you need to do it on God's, on God's way, in God's terms, right? I think we, we often fall on this, don't we? I mean, God wants me to give my time. God wants me to give my money. God wants me to give uh, uh, my heart, my devotion. God wants me to give what? And we forget all the while. It's his to begin with. It's his gracious provision. We give it to God on his terms. And now we move on to the third and final thing. We get to the call. This is how the law uh, promotes a walk with God by calling us to thank God for his faithful walk with us in the past. Specifically with Israel, this applies to their grain offerings. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 29 through 30, he commands Israel, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the overflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. He states a similar command again in verse 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of God. Okay, so you hear what he's saying here. He doesn't want our refuse. He doesn't want our second best. He deserves our best. Why? Because he's the one that gave us the best. He's the one that gave the harvest. He's the one that gave the first fruits. And so out of gratitude to him, they give back to God what he gave to them first. They're to tithe back to God, to give it back to God. As an offering of thanks. Still more, they're told to come uh, appear before the Lord three times a year. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 to, to 17, it talks about three festivals. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the, which is like the Passover. The Feast of Harvest, and then the Feast of the Ingathering. And every single one of these reminded Israel what it meant to walk with God in the past, that he had delivered them from Egypt, that he had provided for them. He has been faithful in the past, and so they are to live in gratitude of that. So that's how the law promotes walking with God. That was very tedious for me, and I know some of you are just like, okay, boy, can we move on to the next point? Well, we are. It's not as good as... It's it's a, it's a point that I, I'm not too excited to preach because I know my own heart here in this. We sing the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's just a little lyric in it that we tend to sing over. And I just remember one day I was singing it, and then I, I the, the lyrics just caught me off guard. And I'm like, why am I smiling about this, about this lyric? It's actually a pretty bad description of me. Um, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You hear what that lyric is saying? We are people that are prone to walk away from God. We are people prone to abandon God. That's exactly what Israel did after getting the law. They were given detailed instructions with how to walk with God. And it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 12, that they abandoned God and walked after other gods. That's the verb that's used, halak. They walked after other gods. In Jeremiah 2, 5, God mourns that his people walked after that which was worthless. And they became worthless. 
the consequence of forsaking their walk with God ultimately led to exile from the promised land. Just like when Adam and Eve turned their back on God to blaze their own trail, they were exiled from Eden. Now, Israel's problem is ultimately a human tendency that we're all guilty of. Isaiah 53, 6 doesn't say all Israel like sheep. It says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside everyone to his own way. Paul agrees, agrees in Romans chapter 3, verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. My friends, every single human being is a human being that has drifted away from the Lord their God, is a human being that has walked away from a walk with God. Left to ourselves, what do you think we'll do? Consistently, constantly, we'll be turning our backs on God, walking away. God knows this. And God's not ignorant of our proneness to wonder. And he could have just left it this way. Yeah, I know my people, they're prone to just walk away from me. Right? But he doesn't do that. He gives a promise in Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah is great because whereas in Exodus you find all these laws that he tells his people to do. And, and the, the whole Old Testament shows this is what they were unable to do. Isaiah follows back and says, yeah, they weren't able to do it because I didn't give them a heart to do it. I didn't give them the means to do it. I commanded them to do it and showed them why they are insufficient in and of themselves to do it. The law beats us down. Anyone that is confident, the law chips your confidence, it throws it in the trash, shatters it in the dumpster, and says, you have no reason to be confident in and of yourself. Prone to wonder are you. And what a gracious lesson that is, isn't it? Can you imagine if we thought that walking with God actually depended on us? We might be walking in a different direction and not even know it. And poor little Titus, you know, we can be walking in direction. He's just walking off and like, hey, come on, guys, you know, then turns around and realizes we're all the way over here. We may be walking away from God and be completely ignorant of it. So here's what God promises in Isaiah 30. Your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears. And listen to the beauty of this. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images, and you will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. You hear what God's saying? I know in and of yourself, you are prone to idolatry, your idol factory. You are attracted to whatever idol walks past you. You lust after them. You walk after them. They walk by and you turn aside. But I'm going to give you a teacher. He's going to walk behind you. And when you start to veer, he's going to whisper, not that way. Turn back. You get to a Y in the road. You don't know which way to go. He whispers, turn this way. This is the way God wants you to go. And he keeps us in the way of God. And the result is that when idols walk by this time, we smash them to pieces. You hear God's promise and what he's giving. He's going to give us the ability to walk with him permanently. Now, God ultimately kept his promise to, uh, by sending Jesus 
to die for our sins, to die for our idolatry, and by sending His Spirit to indwell His people. Here's the amazing beauty of the gospel. When humanity refused to walk with God, God took on flesh and walked with humanity. When we refused, when we walked away, God walked after us. John 1.14 says that the Word that was in the beginning, that was with God, that was God, the Creator of all things, took on flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. He walked perfectly with the Father. And then He doesn't just show us the way to go. He actually says, I am the way to go. He doesn't just say, hey guys, you're walking the wrong direction. He comes and gets us and grabs us by the hand and brings us back into a walk with God. John 14, 6. He took all of our idolatries onto his shoulder and he died for them on the cross. All of our wanderings, all of our going astray, all of our ability to lust after idols and to walk after other Things and other gods and our rejection of him and our trailblazing attitudes that don't want to submit to his terms. He took them all on his shoulders on the cross and he died. He took our tomb and he laid on a cold slab for three days. Breathless. Then on the third day he rose again. Now, here's the amazing reality of that. Had Jesus done that and left it like that, we would have still walked away from God. Can you imagine if Jesus just simply came and cleaned the slate? Or if he just simply came and brought us back to God? What are we going to do the very next moment we get an opportunity? Veer again. So Jesus gave a promise. His death wasn't just so that you could be forgiven of your sin and of your wondering. His death was so that you can maintain a walk with God. You see it in Romans chapter 8 verse 34. That Jesus died to meet the righteous requirement of the law. And what else? To cause us to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus talks about his death. He talks about his resurrection. And then he tells his disciples... Guys, I'm going to send you my spirit. And here's what he says. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in the truth. You hear what he's saying? Isaiah 30 is coming. The spirit of truth is coming. And he will whisper to you in your ear, this way, walk in it. This way, walk in it. Turn right, walk this way. Because this is God's way. Bat your eyes away. Guard your heart. Love God. Remember the way he walked with you through your health problems and your death scares. And you hear these little whispers as you walk. This is the way I should go. My friends, that's the beauty of Christians. We're not just wanderers anymore. We're not just people who turn astray. We are people who've been brought back to God and who now by the grace of the Holy Spirit are able to walk quorum Deo in the face of God in the way that Adam and Eve were supposed to. My friends, we're not like the Old Testament Israelites that wandered away again and again. We are like Adam and Eve in the garden. Sure, we have the ability to sin. Absolutely. But we also have the ability to stay. The Old Testament Israelites did not have the ability to not sin. 
They sinned. They sinned. Why? Because they were slaves to sin. Christians, on the other hand, have been set free from their slavery. And now we walk freely with God and his spirit given to us, whispers into the ears of our hearts. Walk in this way. My friends, know who you are. Do not wonder. If you wonder, it's because you ignore the whisperings of the spirit of God in your heart. Listen. And you will be able to walk with God. Now, we come to church today. It's spring break for many, and they're going out celebrating and having a good time out. But there's some of us that come to church today, just we're brokenhearted about our sin. We're brokenhearted about our losses. We're brokenhearted about the, the diagnoses and all those things. And my friends, just as a side application for you to think through, Whatever loss you've had this week, whatever frustration you've met, whatever inability to obey that you've met, remember this, God has initiated a walk with you. God doesn't just initiate it, he wants to walk with you. And God doesn't just initiate it, and he doesn't just want to walk with you, he secured it in Jesus Christ. He didn't just secure it in Jesus Christ, he's given you his very own spirit, not to walk beside of you, but to walk in you. To bring you, to magnetize you, to attract you to him. So my friends, know the power of victory that's been given to you in Christ Jesus through the spirit. We are more than conquerors, sons and daughters that hold hands with the father. We are those who walk with God. Truest thing about our identity. We are some of the only people. We, actually, we are the only people on all the planet that walk with God. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We walk with him into the hospital room. We walk with him into the bedroom. We walk with him to the graveyard. We walk with him into the kitchen where our wife is standing and weeping. We walk into the living room where our children are throwing toys at each other. We walk with God. Praise God. That he chooses to walk with us. If you know that you're not walking with God today. We would like to pray for you. We would like to point you to Jesus. We would like to pray for you. We would like to ask God to help you maintain a walk with him. So if the elders will go to the back. And wait and be ready for people to pray. We'd like just a moment just to. We're not going to lecture you. They're not going to re-preach the sermon to you. They're just going to pray for you and listen to you. So if you would like prayer, just go to see one of the elders and pray for, pray with them and ask them for help in, in thinking through how you can walk with Jesus through the Spirit of God. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you walk with us. We don't deserve it. You definitely set terms for how we are to walk with you, God. But yet at the same time, you give us your spirit in us, Lord, to teach us which way to go, how to walk, which way to turn, to go right, to go left, Lord, to follow you. God, we long for the day that we will have the the blessing that Adam and Eve enjoyed and that we would get to hear your sound, your breeze through the garden. That we'd all get to say, it's time to walk with God. That we'd get to see your son Jesus walking through the fields. 
opening up his hand to walk with us. And for all eternity, God, we will get to do just that. Walk and walk and walk before the face of God. Prepare us for that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.